Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the second service. You missed a great time at the first service. I was standing right here. The, way, the rain started blowing sideways. My mother was right. I don't have enough sense to come in out of the rain. But God gives us what we need. My wife brought me a change of clothes. And we had occasionally cascades of water like that. We had one river go pretty much straight down my back in the middle of the first sermon. So I think I've learned some things and I've practiced some things. And I am so glad that you're here. Let me, let me just thank the Lord a little bit for you in your presence, if I might. I watch the weather report on Sunday like it's my job. I suppose it sort of is. Weatherman said 10%. He said nothing about the cascade that someone over here to my right just endured. Uh, and when it started raining, I wondered what would happen. Whether you would come, what we could possibly do about it at that late hour. Well, more people, more men showed up to help set all this up than ever have since the pandemic began. And your faithfulness, your kindness, your generosity, your patience, because we know we're all over the map in our responses to this pandemic. I've talked to every possible, imagine, every possible opinion and viewpoint you can imagine since this began. But the way you've responded as a congregation has been one of the greatest proofs of Christian character and Christian unity that I've ever seen. Even when we've disagreed with each other, you've done so with patience and love and Christian kindness. And through it all, people have been getting saved. People have been baptized. People are, count, are receiving biblical counseling and healing from hurts that sin and suffering and evil dealt them many, many years earlier. And on a regular basis, I'm asked, are we ever going back inside? Yes. Yes, we are. I certainly hope so. If you follow the news like I do, you know that the news changes all the time. That's why they call it news. You may have discovered as well that the authorities sometimes contradict themselves and change their mind from one day to the next. Here's our stance, always and ever. In keeping with Romans 13, we're going to do all we can to comply with the health order while ministering to the greatest number of people possible. Last Sunday, because moms did an awesome job and brought their kids to church, we had an attendance that was pretty close to a high point before the pandemic even began. Been very patient. You've stayed on track. You've stayed on mission. You've borne each other's burdens. It's been absolutely extraordinary. And as soon as we can move back inside and it's just as pleasant or more so inside than it is out here, that's where we're going to be. We're not going to be more cautious than the government requires. We're going to minister within the framework that the government, the authorities that God has established have provided for a little bit longer. I think it's only going to take a few more weeks, but then again, when this began in March 2020, I told the staff, two or three weeks and we'll be back inside. Here we are. What day is this? May 2021. Are you kidding me? And we're still here? Hang in there with a little bit more patience. Hang in there with a little bit more love. You're doing an amazing, amazing job. And the way we respond in keeping with Christian character does more than I think you can possibly realize. Because I talk to my neighbors, I talk to unbelievers, I talk to people who are watching you, who are watching us. Your patient forbearance, your kindness, your determination to keep in touch with the Lord and keep serving others does more than I could possibly explain to you. So let's hang in there. And for those of you who said, I like it so much outdoors that I hope we never go back inside. In Christian love, I tell you, you've got the wrong angle on this one. Let's pray. God, now I get to talk. I'm privileged to open your word and open my mouth to speak of you. I can't do it sufficiently, but I pray that you would give me the grace to do it well and to do it clearly and to do it truthfully. I pray that people who encounter you in your word would go home today saying, wow, not because of the message, but because they've seen you in your word. They've had their mind expanded to have a bigger, more accurate picture of who you actually are. 
So thank you for those who are here braving the elements. Thank you for many hundreds more that are watching online. Captivate us, Lord, with your beauty and your truth. May we go home worshipful, humbled, grateful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For those of you who are perhaps here for the first time, we have been taking a detour from the normal way we teach the Bible here at Crosspoint. Normally what we do is we start in a book of the Bible and go all the way through it. For various reasons, including things that are happening in our culture and in our congregation, I decided for the first time in a long time to teach doctrine instead. In other words, without a specific reference to a single passage of Scripture to do what theologians do, which is look across Scripture and tell you what the Bible teaches about any specific topic. Never let the word doctrine or theology intimidate you. All that is is biblical teaching arranged by topic. For instance, because God made mankind, God has a view. God knows the truth about mankind. The closer your understanding is with what God himself knows to be true, the better your life is going to be, the better prepared you will be to deal with reality. To give you a specific, for instance, there is a widespread culture, cultural idea that mankind at our core are good and innocent and righteous. If you believe that, that will change the way you deal with the world. If instead you accept the Bible's verdict, which we see in experience every day around us, that mankind is actually fallen and sinful and far from the God who made them, that will give you a whole other view and cause you to make other preparations as you navigate through life. And as one great Christian thinker said, mistakes about reality leads to brutal encounters with it. If you live your life according to something that is not true, there will always be painful ultimate consequences for you. So for a few weeks, we've been talking about who God is. A couple weeks ago, before Mother's Day, I explained to you that God eternally exists as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Today, I want to tell you about God's attributes. In other words, what God is like. The greatest thing you can do with your life is to know God. The single greatest thing you can learn, you can dedicate your mind, will, emotions, affections to knowing is God himself. We live in a celebrity crazed culture. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in kind of amused amazement at Christians completely losing their mind because someone famous is across the restaurant. A few years ago, and I won't mention any names because she would faint all over again, Justin Bieber himself showed up at a junior high school recital. He was there to support his friend whose kid, I think, was a kindergartner in the kindergarten choir. And without announcement or fanfare, one of the biggest music stars in the world walked in, sat down. When the junior high girls realized that they were actually playing music in front of Justin Bieber, it wasn't a good thing. They could barely sing a note. They could barely see their own hands on the instruments. It was quite a story. And celebrity has that strange effect on us. Listen to God speak to one of his prophets. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me. In other words, the only thing to be proud of in the world is that you understand and know God, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The greatest thing you can spend your life doing is knowing the God who is actually there. There is an eternal, uncreated God who simply is, who for his own reasons and for his own purpose made you. And your greatest achievement, if we could call it that, it'll all be by God's grace to you. But if you had anything to look back on your life on that you could be proud of and grateful for, it would be simply that you know who God is and you understand him and you understand his character. Today we're looking at the attributes of God and I need you, this is a little heady, all of this is a little heady because we're talking about God himself. 
I had a headache for about two days diving back into theology, my favorite subject in seminary by far. The reason for that is I am learning and understanding and grappling with a person outside of myself. It's not a God of my own imagination and my own creation. It is the God that actually exists who has revealed himself in scripture. And today we're talking about his attributes. And a little theory for you. When we talk about God's attributes, or these are not qualities that God has or parts that compose him. God is not like a pie made up of various parts. So that he's one part love and one part justice. He's one part wisdom and one part holiness. That is not the way the Bible talks about God. The attributes of God, the Bible, you'll see it as I begin to read scripture to you are not parts that God has or qualities even that he has. The attributes of God are simply who God is. His essence, his being. Even in the attributes that he shared with us, they all remind us how different we are from God. Theologians have noticed that in some of the things that God is, he shared those things with us. For instance, the Bible says God is love. Would you consider yourself a loving person? Please don't look at your spouse uh, to assess their own, their own answer. You probably would. Most people, even very hateful people, think of themselves as loving. Here's the reality about love. We can grow into love. We talk about falling in love and we talk about what? Falling out of love. We talked about discovering love. Even in this essence of who God is that he has shared with us because he made us in his image, when we talk about love, there's something fundamentally different between ourselves and God. God simply is love. And in every one of these attributes, I'm going to need about 10 minutes of unrivaled, undivided attention. Because what I have to do to show you who God is, is walk you primarily by reading, not even explaining, primarily by reading across scripture. I need you to see a not exhaustive, but a complete picture of who God actually is. Because if you focus on one of his attributes and exclude some of the others, you'll end up with an idol. Here's a very common thing that happens. Because the Bible explicitly, textually says that God is love, some people think that is all that there is to God. They redefine what love means. They think to themselves that that's all God is, and that leads them into a God of their own making. One of the reasons my head hurt, and one reason you might find this a little bit heady and a little bit deep is we're talking about God. You don't even understand yourself. You don't really understand in your depths your spouse or your best friend. When you talk about the person who made all that exists, including you, you can know him, you can be in a certain, loving, safe, wonderful, growing relationship with him, but to say that you got your mind all around him, you understand him, you fathom him, you've mastered him, absolutely impossible. And every one of these attributes shows this. We love, we can grow in love, but God simply, he tells us, is love. Here's two foundational truths before we talk about more of his attributes, two foundational ideas of what God is like. First of all, God exists. The opening declaration of the Bible is that in the beginning, God created. He's not explained. He's not defended. He is simply assumed and announced. And Jeremiah tells us that God, who has always and eternally been there, that God can be known as well. In other words, God is not a fact of the scientific scientific understanding in the universe. There are a few things that are evidently true about the universe that only a few physicists in the world understand. You experience them every day, but you don't even know their names. You don't know of their existence or their reality. There's only a few scholars who write books that nobody reads that understand some of the deeper realities of the way the universe is put together. The God who made all of those facts, because of who he is, can actually be known himself. 
You can spend the rest of your, of your life, and many scientists have, trying to understand the creation and miss the creator. The creator himself is discoverable. He's knowable, as Jeremiah told us in 9.23, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So I just want to walk you through. I'm mainly going to read the Bible. And the 10 minutes of great attention that I asked you for, they'll start right now. Okay? If I lost you and you've been distracted by my little tracksuit here, my wife brought me this because I was soaked after the first service, and I understand some people find this tracksuit distracting. Somebody said you look like a mobster in leisure hours. So another, per, another friend, I think a friend, said you look like an aging athlete. And I said, I'll hold on to the athlete and ignore the fact that you said I was aging, which is true of all of us. I want you to look past the cascading water my dumb little jacket and everything else and really pay attention for just a little while to what follows regarding God's attributes. They are so many and they are so deep that theologians have actually had different systems to categorize them. All of those designations are arbitrary. They're just a simple way to help organize truth and knowledge. Every field does this. I've taken an old classic way of organizing the truth of God, of what God tells us he is, by thinking first about God's greatness, and then about God's goodness. There are things that the Bible tells us about God that are utterly different from the way you are, and I'll show you some of them, that simply portray the absolute greatness of God. That as it says in the Old Testament, God is so great that the clouds above us are like the dust of his feet. Wow. Just a word picture. It's not literal. The clouds that have troubled us, the clouds that brought the rain, that soaked me during the first service, it's as if God walked across the sky and the clouds that are billowing are just the dust created by his feet. It's just poetic. It's just a word picture to indicate the greatness of God. But literally, thank God, God is not only great, God is also good. There are things that are eternal, matchless, almost imponderable about him that show his goodness, that show his greatness, and there are other things about him that relate to his goodness that are so good. Let me give you a preview because I did learn something in the first service. You're going to think they don't apply to you. When I show you at the end of the sermon just how faithful and loving and compassionate and merciful God actually is, some of you are going to think he is like that toward others. He could never be that way toward me, and you're wrong. God is like this to all. Let's get started. Ten minutes starts now. Ready? God's greatness. Here's one of God's unqualified absolute attributes. First of all, God is spirit. Jesus said in John 4:24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Though God is spirit, he is also personal. When he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3:14, God asked Moses, "Who do I tell Pharaoh? Who do I tell the people of Israel that sent me, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And we'll get into God's name in just a little bit. When God is asked for his name, God simply responds, I am which speaks of his reality, which speaks of his eternality, and which speaks of his personhood, that God is there. He's not like electricity. He's not like gravity. He's personal. Not only that, God is life. Jeremiah 10 verse 10 says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. God is in charge, Jeremiah says, and he always has been. He simply is living. God is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2, listen. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before God brought forth the mountains, before God made the earth, before God made this world and all the other worlds, 
the prophet announces from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Question for you to help you begin to fathom the distance between God and yourself. Are you yourself eternal? What do you think? None of you are eternal, sorry. You're immortal. You were made by the eternal God and you were given life and you will enjoy that life either in heaven and enjoy God forever or you will be separated from God in judgment and condemnation from this point forward. But you're not eternal because you definitely had a beginning. Your mom and dad had an idea. And here you are. 20-some years ago, 80-some years ago, I don't know when, but you had a definite point of beginning, and you will have on this earth a definite time of end, and then your life will go on. God himself is eternal. He simply is. He simply exists. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Greek letters from the Greek alphabet to say, in other words, I'm the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God is not only eternal, he is also unchanging. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, God said, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Listen to that again. I, the Lord, do not change change. Have you noticed that you do? Have you noticed that the world has? One of the most disorienting, depressing, anxiety-producing things that has happened in the pandemic is the change that has been brought not only in our country, but around the world. So many anxious people have talked to me privately and say things like, this is not the country I grew up in. Constant change constant upheaval. You're changing yourself. I don't know if you know it, but you replace billions of cells that make you you every day, primarily blood. You're in constant change and constant flux, just like the weather. Everything is permanently changing. The only thing that exists, the only thing that is, that never changes is God himself. He said, I do not change. And then he said to Israel, that's why you're not consumed. In other words, the reason you're still here is I don't change. If I changed, you'd be gone. What does he mean? Well, if you read the book of Malachi, Israel is far from him. They're denying him. They're defying him. They're disobeying him. And the God says, I don't change. My purpose, my promises, my character do not change. That's why I'm still with you. That's why you're still here. Nothing that I've thought about God has given me more comfort since the pandemic began specifically than to ponder his unchanging reality. Because everything changes. My kids are growing up. One of them moved away. He may soon be in war. Those changes bring anxiety to the heart of a father and a mother. What must I do? I must stay in relationship. I must hold on to the unending, everlasting, always constant, always faithful, never changing reality of the God who made me, my wife, and my kids. God is eternal and also unchanging. James 1.17 says that with the Father there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is also independent. What does that mean? That means, and you'll want to listen for this in all your Christian music, that means that God has no need of anything or anyone. And I reference Christian music because often Christian songwriters in their exuberance sometimes unintentionally portray a God who is needy, and he's not. Since we all put ourselves at the center of our own universe, let me give you some sad and humbling news. You're not the point. God has no need of you. He loves you. He is so good and faithful and merciful that he sent his son to die for you. But he did so because he is love. 
He did so because he is mercy. He did so because he is good. He did not do so because he had great need of you. I know this because of Acts 17. Paul is preaching in a pagan secular place with, that is filled with idolatry. And in Acts 17, Paul said this, his sermon. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Listen. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The breath you just drew, a gift from God. Because he's good. He has no need of you. He loves you, but he does not depend upon you. I wish most of all Christians who serve the Lord in ministry understood this because sometimes guys like me get an inflated importance, sense of importance and sense of place in the world. God can do all of this without any of us. To serve him, to know him, it's all privilege. It's all pleasure. Years ago, as a young preacher, I was crabby, I was stressed, people had consumed a lot of my time, I was way behind on sermon prep, and I said to my wife, somewhat in frustration, well, babe, I can't do this, you know, I got to preach on Sunday, and she said, very sweetly, because my wife is wiser than I am, very sweet, she knows how to talk to me, she said, Bruce, you don't have to, you get to. Feel the difference? Big difference. God need this building? God need any one of us? No. He will go on with his eternal, unperturbed, blissful, perfect, beautiful existence without any of us. Why then does he want us? Why does he desire us? Why did he die for us? Because he's that good. And when you understand all of these things together, when you put them, though he's not made of parts, when you see how all these things harmonize, you can't help but love him. God is also all-powerful. Jeremiah 32, verse 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God is not only all-powerful, God is all-present. He is everywhere. The psalmist in 139 says, Psalm 139, in the last two verses, in 9 and 10 of the passage I'm citing to you, the psalmist said, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You need to know there is not a part of God's created world where God is not simply there. There is nowhere you can hide from him if you decide to abandon him. That is the point of Psalm 139. Wherever you go, even if you go down to the grave, God is already and always has been there. Some of the most moving testimonies I've ever heard are by American Christians who were prisoners of war in some of the most brutal places that mankind has ever devised where men torture men. One of those testimonies coming from the infamous Hanoi Hilton from the Vietnam War, one of the men who knew Christ but had wandered away from his love to Christ was being tortured and nearly killed in prison, and there God met him, and there God started bringing scripture that he had long forgotten. He had memorized as a child. God in his grace started bringing scripture, biblical truth, back into this man's mind, and what helped him survive was the reality that along with all the brutality, all the torture, all the starvation and the death surrounded him, his heavenly father who loved him and gave his son for him, he also was there even in that brutal place. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That talks to you about the fact that God is all-knowing. These are a few of the attributes that help you see God's greatness. Here's a few more. I asked for 10 minutes, how you doing? You go, it feels like 10 minutes already. I know, hang in there. Here are a few attributes that highlight God's goodness. God is holy. He's separate. 
He's a cut above. He's in a category all of his own. This is probably the single greatest misunderstanding about God. Many people have an idea that they wouldn't articulate this way, but what they actually think about God is that he is sort of a supersized version of themselves. God's not you on steroids. He's a whole other thing. He's utterly separate. He's separated from his creation. Psalm 99 verse 9 says, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. God is righteous and just as well. Moses said in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice of God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That is God's righteousness and justice. This next portion, I want you to look up in your Bible. I've mainly been reading scripture to you because there is so much of it. This is a very different kind of Sunday. I want you to open your Bible and read Romans 3.23. Romans 3, verse 23 highlights the righteousness and the justice of God. Here's the gospel if you haven't heard it. Here's God's message in just a few sentences. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, God the Father sent God the Son as the full payment for sin by the death of Jesus. Paul says that is to be received by faith. Why did God do this? Here's your answer. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Look at the attributes of God in harmony, working for your salvation and forgiveness. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. At the cross of Jesus, you learn much about the nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because there you see the justice of God expressed against sin, and there you see the love and mercy of God because it is his son dying on the cross. The one who committed no sin is dying for sinners so that God can maintain who he always has been and always will be. God will remain just. Sin will be dealt with. No evil deed, no lie, no lust, no murder, no act of selfishness will be ignored. It will all be brought to God's justice, but because of God's love and mercy, justice will be done lovingly and willingly on the cross of Jesus because God didn't want you to face his justice. He wanted you to experience his grace. This is the God we love. This is why we worship him. Furthermore, God is truth. Jesus said famously, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. You want to feel the distance between yourself and God again? Would you say that generally you're a truthful person? It's not very cooperative, folks. Come on, it's not even raining. Work with me here. Would you say you're a truthful person? Yes. Would you say that the sum of your word is truth? In other words, if we piled up every word you've ever spoken and written, that the totality of your words would all be truth? How you doing now? <laughs> Only someone with a profound lack of self-awareness would say yes. They would be laughed out of their homes if they brought, gathered their families and said, family, I'm glad you're here. The sum of all I have ever said and ever will is truth. You can speak truth. You know the truth. When you deal with people, you insist on the truth. Only God himself is truth in his actual total being. Finally, 1 John chapter 4 verse 8 announces to us that God is love. Listen, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Not only that, God is perfect. Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 
This attribute agrees and harmonizes with all the others. Everything that God is, he is in perfection. His truthfulness, his justice, his righteousness, his mercy, his anger against sin, it's all true. It's all completely true. It's all true at the same time because God is perfect. And finally, and I don't want you to miss this before we're done, God is beautiful. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 27. Listen to a troubled man work through his troubles in life. You can open your Bibles there if you like, Psalm 27. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Listen, are you upset by the pandemic? Has your job been harder like one man I talked to between services? You lost someone? You lost friends? Have you strained relationships? Have you lost a church home? Are you alienated from People, are you troubled by the direction of the country? Listen to Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Don't miss this. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. God is not distant. God is not harsh. God is not ugly. God is beauty. This beauty that we love in Southern California, the spectacular sunsets that you see about half the time when you look in that direction down Warner Avenue, you sit on Sunset Beach and it looks like the sky itself is ablaze. Imagine in this fallen world, imagine the beauty, the strength, the creativity, the wisdom and the generosity of a God who made that. And this world's wrecked by sin. Countless times, sirens have interrupted these outdoor services. And whether it's evil or frailty or simple mortality, the sirens always remind me the world is filled with trouble. And frail, weak people are doing their best, sometimes through tears, to go somewhere and help. That's what the siren means. And many times they will be too late, and many times they will arrive on time and find that for all of their training and for all their technology, they are insufficient. What gives me strength and comfort and perspective is that the Father who loves me, who is in all of these ways, who exists in all of these ways, in his very being is beautiful. And David, who men wanted dead, who his enemies would literally like to physically tear apart, says, with all this trouble around me in the midst of war, what I want is I want to sit with God and behold his beauty. If you don't do that daily, you're weaker than you should be. If you don't do that daily, you'll be more anxious that you should be. You should spend time every day with the God who is simply there, resting, relaxing, enjoying, and being strengthened by his beauty. Those are the attributes of God. I'd like to close with a very brief reflection on one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, Moses, in the depth of his relationship with God, a man who spoke with God face to face, asked God to show him his glory. And the whole story says that God hid Moses in the cleft of a rock. In other words, he put him in a safe place where Moses could be physically protected and stand with rocks surrounding him. And again, God showed his glory and his goodness to Moses in one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. I know it's important because it's quoted all across the Bible. Here's what happened. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord there in all caps is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which simply means I am. 
anytime you see that in your Old Testament, understand that the translators have put the word LORD in all caps to refer to the name of God, the name that God gave Moses way back in Exodus 3 when Moses asked him, who do I say sent me? And God chose to explain himself, his personal name, a proper name by saying, just tell them I am. Every time you see that, remember, that's a personal name like Bruce or John or Peter or Bob. But it's built on a verb that means I am. That means the God that we're dealing with and we're talking about, he just is. Unlike us. He doesn't come into being unlike us. He doesn't change unlike us. He doesn't lie. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. In other words, I am, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. This passage is important, and I'm nearly done. Listen, this passage is important because when Moses asked God, do me the favor, do me the blessing, do me the grace of telling me who you are, of showing me what you're like, this is how God chose, according to the passage, to proclaim his own name. This is not psalmists. This is not prophets. They're right and they're truthful. These are not men speaking of their experience and their understanding of God, even inspired by God. This is God himself speaking to another, speaking to a man, telling him who he is. The, the name again means I am. It is a proper name reminding you that God absolutely is. And this paragraph shows you that God is good. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who keeps steadfast love for thousands. That could be translated for thousands of generations, and he does so by forgiving sin and transgression of sin. Let me ask you before we're done, so you can go home marveling at your God, is that how you think of God? Do you think of God bursting forth with love and forgiveness and steadfast love and mercy and compassion? Is that the first thing that comes to your mind of God? If it's not, you need to learn. You need to correct the impressions that have accumulated in your mind because when Moses asked God, show me, tell me who you are, God went on for a long paragraph about his goodness, about, look at it again, his mercy, his grace, how slow he was to anger, how abundant he was in love and faithfulness, how he kept steadfast love for thousands of generations and how he forgave iniquity and transgression and sin. There's no one in your life that has ever loved you perfectly like that. The people who love you most, they get tired of you. Have you noticed? They've had enough of you. There's not a person in your life that you can't think of things that you can do that would make them withdraw their faithfulness, that would make them withdraw your, their mercy, that would make them change their mind about you. We live in that reality every single day. This is God and his goodness, and this is also God and his greatness. Look, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And somehow, because I think we're broken in sin, that's the only part of God's self-explanation that people focus on. Why is that? 
because we really don't believe the first part that God told us about himself. Is it true? Do the generations, do the consequences of sin reach forward into future generations? You tell me. Many of you came to Christ because you were dealing with the woundedness and the evil and the neglect that you were raised with. You came to the understanding that your mother and father perhaps were doing the best that they could, but they failed you, whether they meant to or not. And that sent you in dissatisfaction and in pain looking for a better and more perfect love, and then you found Jesus. And somehow you think that your heavenly father is frustrated with you. And Jesus loves you, but God, he's kind of ticked at you. God the Father's always drumming his fingers, tapping his foot. And Jesus continually has to speak up for you and remind the Father that everything's okay. No, listen, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they all share these attributes equally. Their work and their activity is different in the world. The Father sends the Son and the Spirit gives new life because the Son has died for sin to bring people into God's family. But your God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your Father, this is who He is. This is how He loves you. The consequences of sin, even when they reach the third and fourth generation, don't miss the contrast. God said, my love and faithfulness will reach thousands of generations. A very Hebrew way of saying, I'll love you forever. I'm not keeping track and I'm never going to tell somebody, well, you're out of luck. No more love for you. No, I'll love all the people that I've received. I've loved all, I will love all the people who trust me and I'll love you unchangingly and perfectly and powerfully forever and even sin for all of its devastation. Its consequences only carry forward for a few generations. The faithfulness, the mercy, the compassion, the goodness of God forever. How do we respond to a God like that? Well, I think we should respond the way Moses did. I think we should worship. I think we should say with Moses, if I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin. It's kind of humorous what Moses said. Let me help you understand it, and I'm done. Moses said, God, if you're really like that, please go with us, because we're stupid. We're a stubborn, sinful people. Moses has labored with them for four decades. They've literally worn out his life and exhausted his patience. Moses knows what is in the heart of these people. He's actually going to die on the wrong side of the river because right at the end in his old age, Moses lost his temper. He failed to revere God because he was so frustrated with Israel. And he humbly says with his face on the ground, God, I love you, I worship you. If you're really like this, please go with us and forgive us along the way because we're stubborn and sinful. Nothing's changed. I'm stubborn. I'm sinful. Ask anybody who knows me well how stubborn I can be. Ask me. I'll tell you how sinful I can be. The point is not whether I have sinned. The point is whether God can forgive. And at the end, let me tell you that we should be grateful that God can be ours and that we can be his. Look at the last sentence. You will take us for your inheritance. Wow. In other words, it's not that we are forgiven, and I don't know if you've ever been forgiven this way. I have several times in jobs that I've had. The manager says, that's okay, we're going to let it go this time, but you can go now. And you kind of leave the office grateful to still have your job. I'm not going over for dinner. He doesn't want me for a best friend. He doesn't treasure me as part of his inheritance, okay? God's forgiveness is so rich and so full that it's not only that debt is canceled, you're welcomed into God's family and you're treasured as you're part of God's inheritance. You're part of his wealth. You're part of the things, part of the people he delights in. This is your God. This is how he loves you. If you don't know this Savior, the best thing you can do, the only thing you can do now is tell this God that you're terribly sorry for your sin and you trust him to save you and forgive you. That if he really is this different from you, he knows all about you. He is eternal and unchanging and just and righteous. But 
literally, thank God he is also loving and patient and merciful and willing to forgive. You need to run to him and ask him to forgive you. And if you already know him, Christian, you should be grateful. You should get up every morning and use the breath he gives you to thank him that he is like he is and he loves you the way he does. Let's pray. Can I just ask you directly, I don't know everybody here, even though I can't see across this giant outdoor auditorium. I know there's people here for the first time. Do you know God this way? Or is he just maybe a religious relic? Is he just an idea to you? He's a person, righteous, willing, eager to judge sin, but also willing and eager to forgive He's patient with us. He doesn't want you to go on living, should say go on dying without him. If you don't know him, could I just invite you to talk to him in the humility that he will give you and say, God, I don't know you, but I believe what I've heard. I don't get all of it. I don't think the pastor gets all of it either. But with what faith and understanding I have, I want to tell you I'm sorry for my sin and I'm asking you please to forgive me. If you're really like this, You can pray with Moses. Go with me. Forgive my iniquity. Forgive my sin. Make me part of your family. If you do that this morning, please let us know on the card that's in your bulletin. Talk to me before you leave for the day. Send us an email or a text message. Just let us know in some way that you've trusted God, that you've asked God to save you today. And Christian, this is your God. I mean, how could he possibly be any better? How much more can he be to cause us to worship, to cause us to be grateful, to cause us to be humble? Just take a moment and thank him. Father, thank you that you are the way you are. Thank you for your provision, your sustaining strength in this cold, windy day where we're remembering, Lord, through the gift of your word, what you're actually like. I haven't said all you are because I'll never completely and fully understand it, not even in heaven. But I pray, Lord, that the truth that people have heard from your word would go with them, would sustain them, would guide them, would correct them. Thank you that you can deal with each of us according to our need. Help us to be grateful. Help us to be loving. Help us to grow, Lord, in gratitude for who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. And Crosspoint said... Amen. Folks, you know what we're making out here? Memories. We're getting soaked. I'm falling off stages. I'm getting rivers of cold water down my back, and you keep showing up because the church gathers, the church assembles. That's what we do. But we don't assemble just to sit and learn. We scatter then to serve to beseech the blessing of God on our day, on our life, and in our family, to spread the good news of who he is wherever he takes us. So I pray that you go home with a bigger mind and heart for the God who is actually there and the God who loves you. I pray that you'll be grateful. I pray that you will feel and know yourself to be loved. And I pray most of all that you'll share the good news of who God is with people who today may not know him. God bless you. Love you. See you soon.